So we're in Psalms, and guys, what we've been doing is we've been studying prayer. We've been looking at how to pray, and when I started this series, I talked about how prayer is something that I struggle with. Um, Prayer is something that in my life I haven't been consistent in. I've struggled with having a consistent, vibrant, like real prayer life. And so as I've started the series, I've started as a way to say, I'm not the expert here to tell you guys how to pray. I'm here saying that I struggle in praying and I want to grow. And so what I've been doing is I've just been every day taking at least 10 minutes to pray, which is something I hadn't really done before. I kind of just prayed whenever I felt like it. And I still prayed a lot, but it wasn't consistent. But for the past couple weeks, I've just been praying every day and taking time to do it. And it's been blessing my life. And and I hope if you're doing that as well, it's blessing yours too. Tonight, we're, we're looking at a story about David, and it's in Psalm 51, and we talked about it a little bit last week, but I'm just going to recap for you guys that story, and it's a sad story. Um, the story of David, I mean, he starts out this little shepherd boy who everyone looks at and, and everyone underestimates. Everyone looks at David and says, you know, you could never be anything. You're just a little high school guy. You're just a freshman, David. What can you do? You're the sheep boy. You're just out watching the sheep and your brothers are all strong and powerful and they'll probably be king one day well one one day actually David gets picked to be king the smallest guy in his family he gets chosen by God to be king and David's life just starts getting better from there he goes out and he kills Goliath this giant that everyone in the land was afraid to kill you guys know the story Um, he serves King Saul as a general in the army and David becomes the most powerful general in the Israelite army. Then David eventually gets to become king and he gets to sit on the throne and he's this amazing king that everyone loves. He's like the ultimate celebrity. Like you can just imagine him like perfect hair, like just amazing beard, chiseled guy, like just great looks. He's a worship leader and a king. Uh, He's not like today's politicians that everyone agrees are terrible no matter which way you swing. Everyone loves David and he's just this fantastic guy. Everyone looks at him and they say he is the leader that we need. He he is amazing. We look up to him. We love him. We're putting all of our hope in him. Well then what happens is David trusts the Lord, follows the Lord, but David as a human being makes a mistake. One day when he's supposed to be out fighting in the war, he stays home He sees a woman, a young woman, bathing on a roof. Now, David already has, at this point, I believe, two wives in the story. Um, And and now he's looking at this woman who's not one of his wives, and she's bathing on this roof, and he says, "I, I want that. And so he sends his servants to go to her house and bring her to the palace, and he seduces her, sleeps with her, gets her pregnant, and then he ends up killing her husband, Uriah, and covering up the murder. And it's this horrible thing that David's trying to hide, but he gets found out. The prophet Nathan shows up to his house and tells the story about, he says, David, there was once a man who he had this sheep and it was his only sheep and he loved that sheep. But then there was a rich man next door who had a ton of sheep and that man came and said, hey, give me your sheep to the man who only had one sheep. And the man who only has one, he's like, no, this is my only sheep. I, I love her. She's precious to me. Like, I don't, I'm, I don't even use her to make wool. Like, she's just my pet. Like, I just, I love this sheep. Well, the, the rich man doesn't care. And he steals the sheep and he kills it and he butchers it and he eats it at a party for his friends. David hears the story. And he goes, that's terrible. Who is this man? Who did this? When I find out who did this horrible thing, I will have him killed. And the prophet Nathan goes, it was you, David. You're the man. You took that man's only wife when you had two wives and a whole kingdom of people who love you, but it wasn't enough for you, David. And David, he hears this and he's broken. Have you ever done something where you just, you felt so broken? Have you ever messed up so bad that you felt like you weren't even worthy to talk to God? You felt like you weren't even worthy to pray. That's where we find David. He's a broken king. Well, he does pray. Psalm 51 is a prayer to the Lord. And David could have prayed a prayer of excuses. He could have prayed a prayer of anger, a prayer of self-pity. But what David prays is something that we all, including myself, need to learn how to do. David prays, or he prays a prayer of repentance. And that's what we're going to be talking tonight, prayer of repentance. So let's read through it, and then we'll just take some time to pick it apart. Psalm 51, to the chief musician, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. This is David pouring out his heart. 
Verse one, he says, have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you alone have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought brought forth in, in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts and in the hidden part you will make known to me wisdom. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities, Lord. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the joy of my salvation, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall show forth praise. For you do not desire sacrifice or else I would have given it. You do not delight in burnt offering, the sacrifice of God or a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Do good in your or do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then they shall offer bowls on your altar. What we see here is a prayer of repentance. And repentance is so needed because we all sin. And tonight I just want to talk to you guys just simply about repentance and what it looks like. David has messed up horribly. How does he start his prayer? Well, look in verse one. He says, have mercy upon me, O God. Have mercy. There's three different words in the Hebrew and Greek language that we can look at to understand what repentance means. The first one is nehum. Everyone say nehum. Nehum. What that word means is when it talks about repentance, nehum, is having a heart that's full of sorrow, like just grieving, like just that, that sick, sad feeling in your stomach when you see something twisted, when you see something that's wrong, when you see someone hurt someone. Do you ever get that feeling when you see someone in pain and you're just, it just your stomach twists up and you go, that's not right. God calls us to have that spirit when we mess up. David asks for mercy. Mercy because he knows what he deserves. He's taken another man's wife. He's killed a man and tried to cover it. He knows that he's messed up so bad, so bad that no one should be able to recover from this. Think about if our president, if our president slept with another man's wife and then had that man killed and it came out. Like, do you think he'd last? Do you think people would keep him around? Absolutely not. David knows that not just in the eyes of the people, but in the eyes of the Lord, he has failed. You know, there's a, in Canada, this town called Wabash. It's a strange name for a town. And it's so just out in the sticks that for a while there was no real road to actually get to the town. You had to just literally climb through the trees and bushes. But eventually they came up with a path. They forged this one path. And it's very strange in this small town in Canada, there's only one path to get in and out of the town. And in the same way, when it comes to our sin, do you guys ever feel stuck in your sin? There's really only one way to get out. You can't fix it yourself. You can't fix your problems. You can't go to your friends. The only way out of your sin is repentance and turning to Jesus Christ. David realizes that repentance is the only way. Now listen, in verse one, he talks about God's loving kindness, God's tender mercy. He says, Lord, have mercy on me according to your loving kindness and your tender mercy. And he says, according to the multitude, the many, many tender mercies that you've given, Lord, blot out my transgressions. Have you ever... Have you ever gotten a bad grade on your report card and you wish that you could just take white out and go over it and that grade would not exist anymore? That's what David's asking. He's saying, Lord, blot out my transgressions. Take it away from me. Just completely white it out. Now, I love that David knows this about God. He knows that God is passionate about mercy. Yahweh, our God, is passionate about mercy. How many of you guys are good dancers? Anybody? How many of you guys enjoy dancing? 
Anybody? Like you like watching dancing videos. You enjoy watching people who are good at dancing. I stink at dancing. But, you know, there are certain people that you watch and you watch them dance and they're so good at it. It brings you joy to watch them and you can tell they're having fun. You can tell that they're just so like, and they're just such an amazing dancer that everyone watches and they're like, wow, that guy's incredible. When I dance, it's terrible. I only have one move and it's just called milking the cow and I just basically do this with my hands and it's terrible. So don't even think about it. Anyway, um, here's the thing. In the Bible, when it talks about God's mercy, it says... His mercy, it's a Hebrew word, hesed. It's one of my favorite Hebrew words. It talks about his covenant faithfulness. See, God is like, like the way God is with mercy is the way that an amazing dancer is with dancing. When God gives mercy, he's having so much joy. He's so into it. He's like, I have so much passion for my covenant. What's God's covenant? Well, think back to Adam and Eve. When they sin, when they mess everything up, what does God say? I'm gonna make a covenant with you that one day, a snake crusher will come and defeat Satan. Noah messes up. God makes a covenant with him. Noah, I'm not going to flood the world again. He makes a covenant with Abraham. He makes a covenant with David. He continues to make covenants. And um, they're, they're not different covenants. It's all really technically rooted in the same thing. God's covenant is that he will rescue mankind, that he will save people. And when God saves people, he is so passionate about it. He delights in covenant faithfulness. David asks in verse two, wash me from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Um, you guys wanna turn that light back on? Um, maybe just put it somewhere where it's not as bothersome, um, but it's just nice to have a little bit more light. Light's always good. He says, wash me from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He asks for cleansing. Guys, when we sin, repentance, it means that you go to God and you ask for cleansing. I read this crazy story about a guy named Philip Semmelweis. He's this Hungarian doctor. And basically, there was a time, this is in the 1800s, around 1818, doctors would be operating on women during childbirth. And so many times during these operations, women would die. Um, it was just, it was crazy how many, it was like one in every six women would die during childbirth. And the Hungarian doctors were just like, yeah, that's just kind of how it is. It's just, that's just the way things work. Um, they called it ba basically pregnancy fever, childbirth fever is what they called it. Well, Philip Semmelweis, I'll just, I'll just read this uh, to you. Um, uh, Philip Semmelweis discovered that the reason that women were dying was because that doctors weren't washing their hands. Um, doctors were not sterilizing themselves before operating on these women. And so he argued he said, listen, gentlemen, childbirth fever is caused by decomposed material conveyed to a wound. I have shown how it can be prevented. I have proved that all I have said, but while we talk, 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 gentlemen, women are dying. I am not asking anything world-shaking. I am asking you only to wash your hands. For God's sake, gentlemen, wash your hands. But virtually no one believed him. Doctors and midwives had been delivering babies for thousands of years without washing and no outspoken Hungarian doctor was going to change their minds now. Semmelweis died insane at the age of 47. His wash basins discarded, his colleagues laughing in his face and the death rattle of a thousand women ringing in his ears. Sad. It's sad that it took doctors that long to realize that washing was good. Guys, when we daily are covered in the sense of our own sin, we need washing. And we need this on a daily basis, but maybe there are some of you here tonight who are living in sin in some way. Maybe it's a big sin, maybe it's a little sin in your book, but you know that you're consistently in sin. The Lord is calling you to washing. The next thing that we see in verse three is David acknowledges his sin. Look at verse three. He says, for I acknowledge my transgressions. This is how he prays. This is how we need to pray for repentance. The second, Hebrew, uh, the second Hebrew word we look at is called shub. Everyone say shub. Shub. It means acknowledging your sin, forsaking your sin, and agreeing with God. Is there something in your life right now where you know it's a sin, but you refuse to agree with God? You refuse to just say, Lord, you know, 
I know this is a sin, but I want to keep doing it because it makes me feel good. Or maybe I depended on it, or I need it, or it's just too inconvenient in my life to give this up. The Lord is calling us to repentance, to give up our sin, to acknowledge it's wrong, to acknowledge it's hurting us, and to acknowledge that we, we need to agree with God. You know, many people often only feel remorse. When we mess up, we just feel remorse. And that just means you're sorry for what happened in the past. But repentance is not just feeling sad about what happened in the past, but it's making changes that affect your future. That's what repentance is. We can feel sorry all we want for what we've done, but until we make a change, until we set our foot on the path of repentance, nothing is going to impact our future. This is what we go through a lot of times. It's called worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow, when you sin, it's not, it's not godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is when you're just afraid of getting caught. When you know there's gonna be consequences, when you know that if people find out what you've done, there's going to be extreme consequences from either your parents or your teachers or your friends or your girlfriend or whoever. And it's superficial because it's not, it's not really coming from a place of the, the righteous heart. It's just coming from our sense of not wanting to get in trouble. An unknown author wrote this. He said, there is a radical distinction between natural regret and God-given repentance. The flesh can feel remorse, acknowledge its evil deeds, and be ashamed of itself. However, this sort of disgust with past actions can quickly be shrugged off, and the individual can soon go back to his old wicked ways. None of the true marks of repentance are described in this superficial, ungodly remorse. We need to ask God, Lord, convict me when I do something wrong. Make me feel bad about it. Here's the second thing we need to do, and this is what David does. Look at verse four. We need to acknowledge God's pain. What does he say? Does he say, I've sinned against Bathsheba, which he had. He seduced this woman. Can you think about the pressure of being a poor, poverty-stricken Israeli girl and the king of Israel, the richest man comes to you and says, hey, I wanna be with you. And I'm sure he didn't just walk right up to her and say, get in bed with me. I'm sure, it was, I'm sure there was some dinner involved. I'm sure there was some glasses of wine involved. David probably had to work at getting her to jump in that bed with him, but she still messed up as well. And David sinned against her. He tricked her, he seduced her. But you know what David says? He doesn't say, Lord, I've sinned against Bathsheba. Lord, I, I've sinned against the people of Israel. He goes to the source and he says, God, first of all, Lord, verse four, against you and you only have I sinned. That's how, how much it's important to David to realize. He realizes, God, I've blown it in your eyes. I've done this evil in your sight, he says. Is that our heart when we sin? Are we just afraid of getting caught? Are we just afraid of what mom and dad might think? Or are we looking at God and thinking, this is the God who hung on the cross for me, not because he had to, but because he was the God who could not live to watch his children die in sin. The God who was so desperate and loving that he went to that cross. Do we realize that every sin that we willingly do is a slap in the face to Jesus on the cross? Do we have a fear only of punishment or do we have a fear of the Lord? What does fear of the Lord mean? I'm gonna tell you guys a really stupid story, so brace yourself because it's very stupid. I'm gonna read it. Prepare for stupidity. A young man named John received a parrot as a gift. The parrot had a bad attitude and even worse vocabulary. Every word out of the bird's mouth was rude, obnoxious, and laced with profanity. A swearing parrot. Some of you guys, that'd be a dream come true. John tried and tried to change the bird's attitude by consistently saying only polite words, using soft music and anything else he could think of to clean up the bird's vocabulary. Finally, John was fed up and he yelled at the parrot. The parrot yelled back. John shook the parrot and the parrot got angrier and even ruder. John, in desperation, threw up his hands, grabbed the bird and put him in the freezer. <laughs> yeah. For a few minutes, the parrot squawked and kicked and screamed. Then suddenly there was total silence. Not a peep was heard for over a minute. Fearing that he'd hurt the parrot, John quickly opened the door to the freezer. The parrot calmly stepped out onto John's outstretched arms and said, I believe I may have offended you with my rude language and actions. I'm sincerely remorseful for my inappropriate transgressions, and I fully intend to do everything I can to correct my rude and unforgivable behavior. John was stunned at the change in the bird's attitude. And as he was about to ask the parrot, what, is, what had made you change, parrot? What had made you change so drastically? The parrot interrupted and said, may I ask, what did the turkey do? <laughs> His, you see, it's a stupid, it's a really stupid story. 
But the point is the, the parrot, he feared his master because he was afraid of death. Because he was afraid of death. Now listen, listen, God is not looking for that kind of relationship with you. God does not want a relationship with you where you fear that if you sin, he's gonna strike you with lightning. Have you been sinning your entire life? Yes. Has he struck you with lightning yet? No. So obviously that's not his game. The Bible Bible says to fear the Lord. Do we know what that means? Do we really know what that means? Yes, God could strike us with lightning if he wanted to, but I've realized the reason I need to fear the Lord is the same reason I fear my dad. And here's what I mean by that. I'm not afraid my dad's gonna spank me anymore. That'd be really weird. I'm 27. That would just be awkward. But I am, I am afraid of letting my dad down. I am afraid of disappointing him. I am afraid of hurting him, saying something that embarrasses him, saying something that hurts his feelings. I respect him so much. I love my dad. So I have, it's not a fear like, oh, my dad's gonna beat me. It's a fear of, I love my dad so much, I don't wanna let him down. Do we have that fear for the Lord? That's where repentance needs to start, with the fear of the Lord. Do you Fear God in that way? Do you have such respect for him that you don't want to let him down? You don't want to hurt him. You know the cost of the cross and you love God so much that you don't want to hurt him. The third thing we see is that David takes responsibility. Look at verse five. He says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Now you might read that and think what he's doing is throwing his mom under the bus and saying like, oh, my mom was a terrible mom, so I was born in sin. That's not what he's saying. What David is actually basically saying is he's using a metaphor. What he's saying in, in, this, in this Hebrew idiom is I'm shocked at my own natural sinfulness. I was born a sinner and I'll die a sinner. I came out of the wound a wretched, terrible human, totally depraved. Is that what we think of ourselves? Or do you think like, I'm a pretty good person? You know, do you think of all the good things you've done and you're like, yeah, I'm a a pretty good guy. Do you have a tendency to look at other people and think that they're worse than you? To think like, oh man, I'm bad, but (laughs) I'm not as bad as them. All throughout the Bible, Jesus himself tells us that that's garbage. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Listen, David was acknowledged in the Bible as a man after God's own heart. And yet right here, he's admitting, I'm a sinner from birth. If David, the man after God's heart says that, then how much more should we acknowledge our own sin and guilt? Listen, here's what you need to know. John Villani says that God will pardon a repentant sinner more quickly than a mother would snatch her own child out of the fire. That's the thing. God doesn't want to destroy you for your sin. That's why Jesus died on the cross. He wants to snatch you out of the fire. Some of you guys tonight, maybe you're living in the fire. And you, know, you don't even realize how hot it is. You've gotten used to it, but you're getting burned. Sin is burning you in your life. The Lord wants to snatch you out of that fire. Look at verse six. He says, behold, you desire truth in the inward parts and in the hidden part. You will make me known to wisdom. The third word, it's a Greek word we're gonna look at. It's just metanoia. Everyone say metanoia. 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 It is a Greek word that means complete turn. Like you're, you're standing this way, now you're standing that way. You've, you've completely turned around in the opposite direction. It means a change of heart and a change of mind. That's what we see David doing here. He's gone through the motions of acknowledging his sin, feeling sorrowful for his sin, and now he's realizing that he's completely wrong. He says in verse six, Lord, you desire truth in my inward parts. He's talking about his heart. Lord, you desire truth in my heart and in the hidden part, you will make me known to wisdom. Guys, the Lord is calling for you to have truth in your heart. That means authenticity. That means authenticity as in if you're sinning, then let God know and let others know. I have never once had a kid come to me and confess their sin and said, all right, you're done. Never come to Wednesday nights again. If you do, I'm getting out my BB gun. I've never once said that. You know why? Because Jesus said that he said, I did not come for the healthy, I came for the sick. When he said that, he wasn't making some weird statement that some people are sick and some people are healthy spiritually. He actually really was saying that everyone needs him. He's the doctor. This youth group, what this is, this isn't a place where we come and pretend that we're all holy. This is a hospital and Jesus is the doctor and I need him just as much as you. I'm gonna read you guys a story. There was a soap manufacturer. This sounds like a great story already, right? There was a soap manufacturer and a pastor walking together down a street in a large city. The soap manufacturer casually said, hey, preacher, 
the gospel you preach hasn't really done much good, has it? Just observe, there's still a lot of wickedness in the world and a lot of wicked people too. So the pastor didn't say anything until they passed this dirty little child making mud pies in the gutter. And then he looks and he says, hey, soap guy, I see that soap hasn't done much good in the world either, for there's much dirt and many dirty people around. So the soap manufacturer says, oh, well, soap is only useful when it's applied. And the pastor said, same thing with the gospel. Listen, guys, in your own heart, you here may be saved, but maybe you are living a life that is filthy with sin, secret sin or public sin that's just out there for everyone to see. You have the gospel, but it's not being really useful to you because you're not applying it. You've been saved to live a life, not of trying to be this perfect little goody two-shoe Christian. No, you've been saved to live a real authentic life where you're honest about your faults and your sins and mistakes, but you are free in the sense that Jesus is constantly helping you overcome those sins and he is constantly using you despite your flaws. That's the gospel. It's Jesus taking imperfect people and working with them, but we need a heart of repentance, not just to say, Lord, thank you that I'm saved, so I'm just gonna keep on sinning. No, we need a heart that says, Lord, I will not continue in sin because I know the cost of the cross. I will not be content to live this way because you matter too much to me and I know that I matter too much to you. I will not have a saved soul and a wasted life. In verse seven, he says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. He talks about hyssop, which was this cleansing plant that was used. Uh, What they used to do was um, in in the biblical times, there were, you guys know about lepers, right? Um, Who here knows about leprosy? Bible kids who've been in church for a long time, you guys know. It's this creepy disease. It's still going around in some third world countries, but it was very big in Jesus' time. Um, Basically, your nerves shut down And all of a sudden you can't feel pain, which sounds great until you put your hand in the fire and you burn your arm off and you didn't feel it so you didn't know to take your hand out of the the fire. It's basically you become a zombie. Your flesh starts to rot. Uh, Your your arms and your, your limbs and stuff start to decay, sometimes fall off. It was very extremely horrible and it's this picture of sin. That's what sin does to us. It corrupts us from the inside out. No matter how big or little you think your sin is, sin corrupts you. Well, when a leper was cleaned, when a leper was healed, what they used to do was they would sprinkle this plant on them called hyssop. They'd grind it up into a liquid and they'd sprinkle it on them. And it was this symbolic picture of cleansing. And if you were sprinkled with the hyssop and people smelled it on you and they saw it on you, they would know you were allowed back in the camp. That's what David's asking for. David knows, Lord, I am outside your good graces. I'm a leper. I've sinned. I've blown it. Man, have you ever felt this way where you've blown it so badly that you just feel like you're outside? Like you feel like you can't even come to church. You feel like you can't even pray. Like you just feel like your sin has created this wall between you and God. When David says, purge me with hyssop and cleanse me, I shall be clean. He's saying, God, purify me so that I can be back inside the camp with you, so that I can be on your side again, so that I can live a life with you. He says, wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Um, Did anyone here, was anyone here fortunate enough to live in a place where there was seasons and trees that changed with the colors of the leaves and the seasons and snow. Did anyone here ever have snow days? I did. I lived in Oregon for about six years of my life and it was fantastic. Some of you guys, you have no idea what I'm talking about, but there was a time in Oregon for me growing up where if it snowed, school was canceled and we had what was called a snow day. Not like a blistering hot everyday day like in California, but a snow day. And it was fantastic. Everyone likes snow. And I think, I think this is something that I find truly beautiful about snow is like, let's say that, you know, our fire pit, the fire goes out and it's just a bunch of smoldering, just black ash. It looks terrible. It doesn't look like a nice built, like when we built this fire, it looked nice. You know, it was assembled and it, the wood looked good. Now it's, it's burning. And, and by the end of this fire, it's going to be just an ash heap. Well, no matter how dirty or ugly that looks, when snow falls, no matter how dirty the surface underneath is, that layer of snow goes over it and everything looks great. It just looks like washed, clean, puffy, white powder. It looks fantastic. He says, wash me as white as snow. You know, no matter how bad your sin on the surface is, God wants to cover it with his love 
He wants to wash you as white as snow so that when people look at you, they don't see all the nastiness underneath, but they see Jesus on the surface. And guys, I have a lot of nastiness inside my heart. I have a lot of sin inside my heart. I have been a sinner my entire life, haven't stopped yet. I've grown in a lot of areas, but I still sin. I am so thankful that when I spend time with Jesus and ask for his love and kindness, and when I repent and I turn to him, he gives me his spirit. And when people look at me, they, they don't see me, but they see him. And something just landed on my back. Oh my gosh, hold on. All right, I'm good. I don't know what that was, but that scared me really bad. <laughs> Let's move on to verse eight. He says, make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Wow, the bones that you have broken. He's asking for healing after punishment. You know, David felt like his bones had been broken at this point. He didn't have physically broken bones, but you know what? After David sinned, after he slept with this woman who wasn't his wife, God actually punished him by allowing his newborn baby to die. And that baby went to heaven, we know, because in God's justice and his mercy, even though that baby died painlessly in sickness and now he's in heaven, that didn't spare David from having to go through the pain of waiting until one day he sees his child in heaven and knowing that it was his sin that was the reason that his child died. David felt spiritually like like he had broken bones. It's amazing that he doesn't go to God and say, God, how could you? How dare you? How dare you punish me for my sin? David says, Lord, verse eight, make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. He says, Lord, I, I deserve that punishment for my sin. Lord, help me to rejoice in you. We need not fear God in a way where we're scared of him. We need to realize that every time God punishes us, it's for a reason. I read this story about, um, there was uh, this guy who had an old Volkswagen bus and um, it got stolen and the cops started going crazy looking for this car. Now, normally, if you've ever had your car stolen, you know cops normally don't go that crazy. It happens all the time. So it's just like, all right, well, we'll look for it, but we'll, we'll see, good luck. But in this case, the cops were so extreme about it. They were blasting it all over public radio, all over the network, putting out APVs all over the place trying to find this guy. Here's the reason. The guy who owned the car had recently been trying to poison some rats in his house. So he bought some crackers and he laced those crackers with poison and left it on his dashboard. So every, every cop in the area is like, we don't want to just catch this guy so we can get the car back. This guy could die if he eats those crackers. If he's driving down the highway and he gets the munchies and he wants those crackers, he could cause an accident on the freeway and a bunch of people could die. Guys, you need to know, man, a lot of times like in your life when you're in sin, when you're in sin and you know you're in sin, you're doing something shady, mom doesn't know, dad doesn't know, your friends don't even know, or they know and they're like totally helping you hide it and keep it a secret, which happens all the time. Believe me and you know, we've all, we've all been through it. When you have that guilt in the Holy Spirit and you feel like God is coming after you, a lot of times we're like, oh, he's coming to destroy me. God's coming to ruin me. Like I've sinned. Like I can't get caught by God because if God catches me and then my parents find out and everyone finds out, like it's just my whole life is gonna come crashing down because of all my sin and all my stuff. Like it's all just gonna come out. We need to stop thinking of God like when you, hear, when you feel the Holy Spirit coming after you and, and God's conviction coming after you, it's not, it's a siren, but it's not, this, it's not a police siren coming to arrest you. It's an ambulance siren coming to heal you. That's what God wants to do. He wants to rescue us from our sin. In verse nine, he says, Lord, hide your face from my sin. Blot out all my iniquities. He's asking God, Lord, I know you can see my sin, but please make it as if I had never sinned. Do you realize what he's asking for? He's asking for justification. Scott taught about that a couple weeks ago. You guys remember in the sanctuary, or not in the sanctuary, the high school room, Scott taught about justification, sanctification. Justification means we become just as if we had never sinned. God blots out our transgressions, our sins. It's like we've got this whole big list of sins. Imagine you're looking at this piece of paper with every single thing you've ever done wrong written on it and you're staring on it and it does not look good. It is not just one page. It is like a 20 pages double-sided stapled. Like it is just gnarly, single-spaced, 
Like just terrible. Just so much sin on a piece of paper. And the Lord wants to take that and rip it up. He wants to say, I will make this as if it had never happened. Guys, it's amazing that what David longed for because of the cross we can have every day. And we take it for granted. I was reading this article on a, um, on a youth uh, website. It was dealing with this idea of answering the question. Uh, I'm just gonna read you guys some points from the article. Um, here's how it starts. The, the question in the article is, if I keep sinning the same sin over and over again, will God continue to forgive me? I'm sure that many of us in this circle have wondered that same thing. So here's how it starts. Evan sat on his bed, staring at his phone. He just screamed at his dad during their weekly conversation, and now a hot rush of guilt filled his mind. Over and over again, he had tried to curb the anger he had felt at his father for his parents' divorce, but it seemed that every week he ended up ranting and shouting at his dad through the phone. Evan bowed his head in prayer to ask God for forgiveness, but then a horrible thought occurred to him. Would God have enough of forgiving me for his, my anger? Had I gone one step too far? And whether it's anger or fill in the blank, another sin for you, I'm sure you've gotten to a point in your life, some of you, where you felt, you know, maybe I've done this too much. Maybe I pushed the limit too much. Is God going to stop forgiving me? Many Christians find they make the same mistakes repeatedly. This is especially so if you have years of bad habits to overcome. We fight. We fight sin. It's a battle. Absolutely. Here's the deal. Just because we repent doesn't mean we're never going to sin that way again. You know, sometimes it can be really tough. I've heard stories. I actually know a guy. I work with a guy. He used to be an alcoholic. And then one day he got saved and he prayed and said, God, take away the temptation. And he's never even been tempted to touch a drop of alcohol again in the rest, for the rest of his life. And I'm like, that's great for you, but for my sins, like, I've prayed that same thing. Like, Lord, it'd be great if I never was a jerk again, if I never struggled in this way again, if I never had a bad attitude or if I never lied. Like, it'd be great if I could just be perfect in these areas. And you know what? I still struggle with temptation and sometimes I still give in. There's a story that Jesus tells that I think shows God's heart in this. Peter comes to Jesus and he says, hey, Jesus, uh, Andrew, he's ticking me off. He's a jerk. What do I do? Jesus is like, forgive him. Peter's like, yeah, but like I did that once. Like, should I forgive him like seven times and then that's the limit? And Jesus is like, uh, you know what? You should probably forgive him like 70 times, 70 times because he knows like Peter's not good at math and that's like the biggest number he can think of. What Jesus is trying to say is infinity times. Just keep forgiving. That's God's heart to always forgive us. Now here's the other side of the coin. The Bible says God will not be mocked. So if in the back of our mind we're thinking, yeah, I can just get away with this sin. I can just do it all I want. Like I, I, I can just sin my face off because I know Jesus will forgive me. If that is the way we are thinking, it is a very dangerous position to be in. And I might even say that if that's the position you're in, you may not have the Holy Spirit in you. And that's something that should scare you. Now there's a difference between struggling. There's a difference between fighting a battle between sin. But if you're just, if, you, if you're knowingly sinning, you know something is wrong, and yet you, you're, you are willingly jumping full force into it, knowing that you, Jesus is your get out of hell free card, man, that's a scary place to be. The Bible says God will not be mocked. Repeated sin in an area is it's a sign that you have a weakness in that area. And so Satan is going to continue to attack you in that area. And so what we need to do is have a heart of repentance where we're constantly working with Jesus to overcome that sin. We need to pray that God will help us overcome that sin. We need to take practical steps to avoid it. If, if there's a certain place that we go where we know we'll be tempted, don't go to that place anymore. If there's certain friends that you hang out with that constantly drag you into that sin, don't hang out with those friends anymore. But I love my friends. Yeah, but they are causing you to slap the Lord in the face and poison your soul. That's a big deal. Like if I was hanging, if I had like really good friends, but they like ate rat poison every day and like 
like, if they were like, if they put rat poison like in cake and they're like, hey, try some of this cake. And I'm like, this doesn't have rat poison in it, does it? Oh no, that was last time. Sweet. Oh crap, I have rat poison. Now I gotta go to the hospital. Like I would not continue to hang out with those friends. Even if they're the best friends in the world and even if that cake was really good, rat poison, right? You with me? Rat poison? It's cake, but it's rat poison. Don't. Okay, anyway, moving on. Verse 10. And we'll wrap up pretty soon. I don't think I'm gonna be able to talk about every single verse in this chapter, but that's okay, because the Lord's gonna say whatever he wants to say to us. So let's just get through a couple of verses and we'll stop in a minute. Verse 10, look, this, this verse, if you guys didn't catch it, Kelly sang it, I asked him to. It's an old Keith Green song. Keith Green is just my homeboy. Died in an airplane crash, like when he was a couple years older than me. This amazing revolutionary for Jesus. Just fantastic guy. If you don't know him, look him up on YouTube. Listen to some of his Bible studies or his music. It'll blow your mind. Keith Green wrote this song based on this part of the psalm. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me. What does this mean? Guys, this is the heart of repentance. That word create, I love this. I found this today in in my Hebrew Bible, my Hebrew study Bible. I just... Sometimes when you look at Hebrew stuff, you just find these nuggets of gold, and it's just, it's so fantastic. Um, so he says, create in me a clean heart, O God. Now, he could have used the Hebrew word for, like, form or fashion. He, he could have used one of those words, you know, if you're a blacksmith, you form, or you fashion things. If you're, if you're a gardener, you know, you form and you fashion the plants. But he uses a word in Hebrew, it's bara, bara. And it's actually really only used to exclusively talk about when God created the heavens and the earth. I love that. He says, create bara in me, a clean heart. Why does he use that word? I think it's because he realizes that he can't create a clean heart in himself. He can't force himself to be a good person. No matter what he does, David can't do it on his own. So he uses a word, bara, the creator of the universe who only he could have created the world. Lord, only you can create in me a clean heart. Only you can do it. Only you, Lord, can fashion that clean heart in me. Are you here tonight and your heart is dirty? Are you here tonight and your heart has wickedness in it? Hey, if you do, welcome to the club. And I could call myself the president because I am a sinner and my heart is often unclean. Often I have pride. Often I have prejudice towards others. Often I am selfish, so selfish. The Lord has been convicting me lately about my selfishness. All of those things are wicked and dirty. And God wants us to have a clean heart. We need to ask the Lord to create in us a clean heart like only he can. Now here's the thing. God wants to partner with you in this. He can't create that clean heart unless you ask him to. That's what David says. He says, Lord, you have to do it. Lord, only you can do it. We have to invite God into it. You know, um, I read this story when I was doing some research on illustrations. and I found one that I thought it was really simple, but it's really good. And I totally get it because um, I've dealt with it lately. It says, uh, there's this man kneeling in church and he's praying with a pastor and, and he's like, Lord, you know, I've just got all these problems. Lord, just clean out the cobwebs in my heart, Lord. Lord, just clean out the cobwebs. And then the pastor goes, and Lord, kill the spider. And I love that. I love that because you know what? Lately, like, I've had a ton of cobwebs. Just so many cobwebs. Just, you see in that area up there on the deck, like, just gnarly cobwebs. And you know what? I started cleaning those out. I got a little broom, and I started wiping them away. And you know what happened? Like, two days later, they're back. And you know what I realized? I have to kill the spiders. If I don't kill the spiders, the cobwebs will come back. So I went to Lowe's and I got this spider killer that literally, uh, it, it, it comes with a gun. Like it's like this nozzle gun that comes with it. And I put on Another One Bites the Dust by Queen and I started blasting it. And I'm just like I did with the flies. First the spiders, or first the flies, now the spiders. And I'm just out and I'm spraying every single corner. And this stuff is so good. It like coats your home and just, I don't know how it does it, but it says that it keeps spiders away for 12 months, which sounds insane. Uh, But somehow it's been working. I haven't seen spiders. There's been a few little webs here and there, but I haven't seen like big gnarly spider webs like I've been seeing. And so it's been amazing. And, 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 That's the truth. 
A lot of times in your life, you're gonna just deal with the symptoms. You're gonna, you're gonna look at your life and you're gonna deal with the symptoms of your sin. You're gonna deal with the cobwebs, but God says, you gotta kill the spider. Let me kill the spider. Let me do it. Like open up your heart and let me in. David says, renew a steadfast spirit. That word steadfast means right. It means righteous. Guys, the whole story of the Bible is related to the fact, it's very simple. It's, it's very simple. Okay, so when you get in a fight with someone you love, you're upset because the relationship is no longer what? Starts with an R. Right, right? When you get in a fight with your wife, for those of you guys who are married, or your friend, or your girlfriend, or boyfriend, or your mom, or dad, when you get in a big fight, and there's just yelling, and, and then you leave, and there's that separation between the two of you, and then you both have that, that just gross feeling in your stomach, you say, in your heart and mind, this is not right. Right? Right. right. We've all been there. The story of the Bible is man sins, slaps God in the face, like, hey, God, thanks for creating me and putting me in a garden where everything's perfect and, and there's fruit and, and vegetables and animals I can talk to and I get to, like, make babies all the time. Like, this is, this is the worst, God. I need to sin. It's terrible. We just slapped in the face of the Lord. And God looks at the relationship and he says, it's not right. And he sends Jesus to make it right. God could have said, it's not right, so I'm gonna destroy them and start over. But he says, it's not right, I love them, and so I'm going to rescue them. Hmm. I think I'm just gonna finish with a couple of these verses. Look at verse 11. It says, do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. This is, this is desperation, Guys, listen. Listen to me very carefully, especially freshmen. Listen. Um, the Lord says, or David says, do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Guys, you can be saved and yet have very little of the Holy Spirit in your life. This is how I think of the Holy Spirit. Um, there's a YouTube video. You guys can look up on YouTube. There's uh, three-minute theology, which is great. Talks about all these different theological things and explains them in really simple ways. So the Holy Spirit, I looked it up. It talks about a balloon. When you've got a balloon, a balloon is always full of air, right? Is a balloon ever not full of air? Like even if it's deflated, doesn't does a balloon not still have some air in it? No. True. Yeah. Like if yeah if if you were to like if your balloon was totally deflated but you like tied a knot on it, like there would still be some air hanging out in that balloon, right? So it's never completely airless, but it can be deflated. Same thing with a Christian. When you become a Christian, like the Holy Spirit never can truly be completely gone from you, but man, the Holy Spirit can be deflated in your life. That's not a good place to be. When you're a Christian and you're just living in sin, man, it feels terrible. It feels horrible. You just, you don't have that sensitivity. You don't have that kindness. You don't have the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, especially. We're in our flesh. We're giving into our sin. Man, we can be saved, but have so little of the Holy Spirit. Guys, we need to constantly be asking for God to fill us. When you're in sin, man, when you turn to repent, you need to say to the Lord, please give me your Holy Spirit. Don't take it away from me. I know I've sinned. I know I don't deserve the spirit, but I need more of it. Guys, and when you repent, when you turn from your sin, and that doesn't mean you be, you're become perfect and you never sin again, but when your heart turns to repentance, man, that's when the Holy Spirit fills you. It's not when you say, I'm gonna repent, and then 12 weeks later, when you've mastered perfection, then the Holy Spirit comes back. No, when you repent, the minute you turn your heart back to the Lord, man, the Holy Spirit fills you. And that's what we need. It's so simple. The Holy Spirit is so available. It's so ready. It's like this fire. What happened? The fire was just dying. What did Eric do? He grabbed some wood and he continued to build the fire. If he didn't, the fire would have died out. Guys, if you're here today and you haven't asked for a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit, like I challenge you, I challenge you. Not the small group leaders doing it, but you, you say, hey, I, small group leader and, and my friends who I'd like to be accountable with, I feel empty. I feel like I need the Holy Spirit more. Can you guys pray for me to have a fresh feeling of the Spirit? 
do it. It'll be fantastic. I guarantee you, it'll be, it'll be the greatest thing you've done today, this week, this month. Asking for a filling of the Holy Spirit. And in verse 12, he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Man. This is what breaks my heart. Completely breaks it. Following Jesus is supposed to be a joyful thing. Yeah, it's scary. Yeah, it's difficult. Yeah, there are trials and tribulations. Man, when you start serving Jesus, the enemy puts a target on your back. But man, the joy. The joy of knowing we're saved. The joy of being free. The joy of not being in bondage to sin. Yes, still dealing with temptation, but not feeling like you're a slave to sin and not a slave to fear like we talked about last week, but being a child of God. And the, the joy. Man, guys, when you're a saved soul but a wasted life, that joy disappears. And you know what? That's what Satan loves. Satan looks at you guys who are saved and he says, man, if I can't drag them down to hell, I'm gonna make their life as a Christian a living hell. I'm gonna make them so just trapped in their sin, knowing it's wrong, knowing they're saved, knowing they're slapping the Lord in the face, but then like giving them these waves of pleasure from their sin that just make them feel like, oh, this sin's so great, I can't leave it. I, I'm, I'm trapped by it. I could stop anytime I want, but I won't, I can't, but I could if I wanted to, but I won't. It's just, oh man. Guys, like lately, like my heart has been so broken watching this happen to friends. And family. So to see that joy taken away. And if you're here tonight, man, that's the cool thing about repentance, huh? It's not just, it's not just us saying, God, I've blown it. God, I'm wrong. God, I've failed you. But there's, there's positive. It's Lord, Give me back that joy. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. What did he save us from? Hell, right? Yeah. But I think more importantly, he saved us from ourself. He saved us from our sin. That's what we forget. We focus a lot on being saved from hell, but then we live a hell on earth because of our sin. When Jesus made you to be free, Man, I got more, but I think let's just stop there. Let's pray. Lord, create in us clean hearts and renew a right spirit within us. Cast us not away from your presence, O Lord. Take not your Holy Spirit from us. Restore unto us the joy of your salvation, the joy of being saved from ourselves. Lord, I want to pray for people in this circle who are getting their joy from false sources that only turn to pain and sorrow. For those trapped in sin, for those addicted, for those who feel like there's no way out, God, show them that the way out is repentance. It's the changing of the heart and the mind. It's allowing ourselves, Lord, to search our hearts and feel sorrowful, to feel convicted about our sin, to realize that it's spitting in the face of you on the cross for us. Lord, every single person here will sin, but Lord, I pray that no one in this circle would live in sin. I pray that no one here would be in bondage to sin because we don't have to be. You died so we don't have to be. Restore unto us the joy of your salvation. We love you, Lord. We thank you. In your name, amen.